This is the All In Gospel Podcast, where we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every week. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or join us at allingospel.com. Enjoy your Bible study. Blessings. Okay, so we're in Exodus 21, uh, which is where we left off last time. And it says, now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. Uh, Judgments in that first verse are mispotum, which means manners or ordinances, a way to live or uh, a a civic set of laws. And these come directly after, um, basically, chapter 18, remember Jethro said you need to set up judges, Moses? So these would have been the things the judges got so that they could manage these groups of people, right down to groups of 10, right? And so these are likely the same judgments that Moses would have taught those elders so that they could rule the nation for him. It says, you shall set before them which is highly contextual, and it implies that Moses is looking at dying someday. So he's going to set these in front of people, but they're not permanent or eternal. They're set before you, which means they can be taken away at some point. And later in the New Testament, that's part of what they talk about, is that the laws have been fulfilled through Jesus, right? So God speaks of him for himself in chapter 20. Remember lightning, or lightning, trumpets, clouds, and that sort of thing? And here it's, he's telling Moses to set these in front of people in chapter 21. So when the people said, we want you to be the mediator, this is how Moses is doing it. This is his mediation. And let me say before I get too far into it, if you're reading ahead right now, you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is starting to get tedious. Because tonight we're going to learn how to take care of your ox, what to do with holes when you dig them, um, not like the dwarves. <laughs> and we're going to get into all these kinds of things about servants and masters and slavery and all these things. And you think, where is this stuff? Um, and to set another piece of context, and I think this is in part because we have a lot of people here now, we've had a long journey in Exodus to get to these laws. And this is the mistake the Pharisees made, that we as believers want to serve the Lord and these laws are little rules for our life. But it's not like that. We've had this covenant in chapter 19 before the law came into place. And I think that's a super important idea because like last week, you start the commandments, last two weeks, you get a little depressed because you think, man, I can't fulfill any of these commandments. This is horrible and depressing. And thanks to Grant who said, you know, once in a while we don't break the commandments. And it's, you look for those glimmers of hope. The danger in that is if I can get an hour where I don't sin, maybe I can get a whole day where I don't sin. Maybe I can get a week. And if I'm a Pharisee, I think I can live my life and never sin. And that's the opposite side of this. It's going too far in that direction. Now you're a legalist. And you think that your works make you holy. And that's just not true. What made the Israelites special and holy is that they cried out to the Lord in Egypt. He saved them. He redeemed them. He led them. He asked them if they wanted to be in a covenant for the rest of their life. And they all shouted, yay, we like the covenant. And then he said, okay, if you want to be in a covenant with me for the rest of your life, let me tell you who I am and what I expect of you. And then they follow the law. So at best... These are judgments, are not commandments. These are precepts by which we would be judged if we sinned. And we should be okay with this judgment if we sinned, even that we get into death penalty stuff here tonight, right? So if we've done something wrong, there's consequences for what we've done. I'll get more into that. Um, I think we expect deep and profound ministries when we get into the word. Like we think, oh, this is gonna be super awesome. And I think there's some deep, profound stuff tonight. But I also love how the law is really simple. Like if your ox kills somebody else's ox, you both have to split the oxen. And there's super simple order to what God says for his people. And I think it's really neat. And it all comes down to like, 
don't be a jerk, right? And, and don't aggressively attack other people in your life. And that's, we can do these kinds of things. And actually, like Grant said last week when we had our conversation, feel pretty good that, hey, we, we're not always horrible people, you know, and we can actually do that. So one last point before we get too far into this is that when you're in 1600 BC and you compare every civilization that existed on the planet at that time, there is one rule in the world. If you're stronger, you win. If you can beat somebody up, there's no consequence for that. You win. And there's this kind of root kind of idea to that that might makes right. And that's true of Egyptian law. It's true of Canaanite law. It's true of every single group of people and law group that happened during that time. So in chapters 21 through 23, we're going to get into all sorts of things. Um, Tonight, we're going to do servant law, murder law, liabilities for animals, liabilities for holes that you dig. And that's the laws we're going to get to tonight, which doesn't sound very sexy. But next week, we get into theft, rape, idolatry, care of the weak, lending, how to do rule of law and those things, much more exciting stuff. Um, And we go through a few of these kinds of things. So we'll start with the law for servants. And in context, I want you to just kind of look out for that idea that this is the first time in history that one of these gods, including like Ra, the sun god of Egypt, but here's a god, Yahweh, who says, I don't want you to just have power over other people. That there's some equality in humanity, your life has dignity and worth, and you're accountable when you mess up other people's lives. And that's totally revolutionary. For us, we just assume this is all how it works because America was built on a set of laws that reflected Judeo-Christian tradition. And before the tradition started, these laws didn't exist. You could just do what you please. And they did for a couple thousand years. So verse 2. If, if, I'm going to start with the word if. If does not imply this is God's will. This is not an argument for slavery. If you buy a slave does not mean this is something that you need to do or that God endorses it. In fact, most laws are there because somebody's broken the rules. So now we got to make a law or make a sign, one of the two. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he goes out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. And if his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. Well, this is archaic, old, nasty stuff that has no relevance to our life at a first glance. We don't necessarily do this. But then you look at what this stuff means and what the words are. For starters, the word servant there... um, is actually a male version of servant. And if you look down a little bit, there's a maid servant, or I don't know how it's translated in your Bible. There's another word for female servants. We're talking about men servants right now. And obviously if there's a wife, that's the case. So um, I also don't think this is an accident. Out of the 600 laws that we're gonna cover in the Old Testament, this is the first one. That's no accident, right? God puts things in order sometime for a reason. So it's not, a coincidence that the Lord starts in Exodus 20 verse 2 and says, I'm the Lord thy God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of bondage. And the first law he deals with is one of bondage. If you're going to continue to do bondage, here's the rules around it. And this is going to limit the power of the master or the owner in a way that looks kind of interesting. Also, when we think of slavery in the United States of America, as we all went through schools, we learned about American slavery. This is not American slavery. There's only four reasons you can become a slave in Jewish tradition. Way number one is in Leviticus 25:39. You can sell yourself as an employee to someone or a servant or a slave. It's all the same word. If I want money from you, 
So without banks, this is their banking system. I want to buy a house. I work for you for six years. I come out and I am able to take and, and, and get my house. So you can sell yourself as a loan and work off your debt. Even today, if you buy a house, the bank will generally approve about five years worth of your income. So if you multiply your income by five, that's generally what you can get approved for at a bank. But so there shouldn't be much in your life that you need to purchase that goes beyond six years of labor, right? Number two, Second Kings 4.1 says, you can go in, you can put yourself into servanthood to get out of debt. So this is debt and loan forgiveness programs. America breaks this totally because I'm still having student loans in my 40s. And most of you will too. Sorry. Especially the educators. Okay? I didn't even pick on musicians. <laughs> right? So you can say, I want to get out of my debt. I'll give you six years of my labor. And your debt's gone at the end of that. Your master would take care of your debt. And six years worth of labor has a value. No matter who you are, if you can work and function, that has value for whoever the master is. Third way you can put yourself into service, and this comes later in this chapter, a daughter can be sold into a marriage contract. So if I'm a poor father and I have a wonderful daughter and I want her to get married to somebody, even maybe marry into a family with some wealth and opulence, her service for six years can be her dowry. So she goes into that household and serves. And remember a household in this ancient world, is these were Abraham-like households, right? There were hundreds of people that worked for Abraham and lived in his thing. So the corporation would travel with the sheep and you'd go work for that corporation and give your service. So the other piece is if you're moving around with your sheep and you're moving around with your sheep and all these sheep are moving around parts of the ancient world, we don't talk very much. Like our people don't hang out. We don't have, you know, get togethers and we don't have those community things where people can gather. So all you're looking at are largely your cousins all the time. So to get anyone where you're not inbreeding, you have to get young people into other people's households. This would be a way to do that. Take my daughter into your household for six years, but with the firm idea that there's a marriage contract at the end of it, like she'll marry one of your sons. Make sense? Third way you can get yourself into servanthood in the, in the Jewish world was if you were a thief in Exodus 22, we're going to see that this is a way to get justice for if you steal from somebody, you can go into their service as a consequence and pay off what you stole. And so this is kind of, so those four ways. To kidnap someone and put them into permanent service, absolutely unbiblical. And we're going to see in this chapter that's worthy of the death penalty. It is never the case in biblical law when you see the word slave that they're talking about that kind of slavery unless you're in Egypt or in other, or the Canaanites, right? But the Jewish people, it's read that more as employment contract, right? And there's a limit to it. And these verses limit it. You can't, you can't have someone in service for more than six years because ultimately, and this is kind of, I think this is revolutionary, people have free will. People have a choice to live how they want to live. So six years is it, and then they get to go out free. I think six years is not an accident. Remember back in Genesis 29, Laban kept Jacob for seven years, and it wasn't good. And so there's not an accident here that they say, you know what? Laban was the example of the bad master because he was taking advantage of Jacob. So he kept Jacob for seven years. You can only keep somebody for six years because that's the point of time that's reasonable, right? That's how long we keep people in college. No, I do four years. <laughs> um, he shall go out free um, where it says he came in by himself, goes out for himself. In the Hebrew, that's ba'gaf and yatzagaf. And the word gaf means to arch one's back, just you and your back. So you came in with your body, you leave with your body, right? There's no debts either way. It's a clear and a distinct rule, and it's really valuable, too. And, and, and 
if you're working with others, you do it with that understanding. So if this is the law and it's written and read out loud to everybody, both the master and the servant know the law. So then what's this thing with a marriage? Why would you ever get married when you're living in a household knowing that at the end of your six years, you're going to have to leave your wife and kids behind? That seems really harsh. But remember, the servant knew this before they started dating the master's daughter, right? So I think this is kind of courtship. And it's really important when we read verses five and six, we're going to get into that. This is a way, I think, this is my idea. If I'm a master and I invite you to come live in my house, and I love your, you get up in the morning, I don't have to get wake you up and get you out of bed and say, come on, are you ever going to work? You're not a lazy bum. You're a hard worker. You're great to have in the household. And I'm thinking to myself, dang, this guy might be a great match for my daughter. I could permanently have this person. Because when you got married and you stayed in the household, right? Generations would stay in a household. I kind of want this guy permanently. So I got to find a young lady in my household. And if I can get you to fall in love and start a family, then verse five and six come into play. Maybe you'll want to stick around, right? So if a servant comes into a household, falls in love with the people that live there, they can choose to say, I want to be a permanent part of the family. They can be grafted into the family. This is a really cool idea. Look at verse five. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges and he shall also bring him to the door or the door po- or to the doorpost. Same word as Passover, right? That doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl or open his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. The servant plainly says and brings him to the judges means this is a real, this is a community public affair. So this is a ceremony. This is like wedding, right? Everybody shows up to the wedding. Everybody shows up to this moment because you go in front of the judges and the servant plainly says is actually the word twice. It means amar, amar in the Hebrew. So the person's going to say, say, or the person's going to, you know, they repeat themselves when they're doing it. They're not just going to say it. They're going to say, say it, right? Amar, amar. It's a public declaration. The word amar is the same language that we saw in Genesis 1 when God spoke the world into existence. You're going to say something that creates a permanent contract. You're going to let your mouth make something real. Amar, amar. I love the law. Ahav is a wonderful Hebrew word that takes all kinds of love. But this is a love that's one of adoration, even worship. We ahav God, but this person says, I love and adore this master. That's not the kind of slavery that we grew up learning with the word slavery, right? This is a very different kind of slavery. We don't even have this in our employment. I don't love my boss. Or maybe you do. Maybe there you come to a point after six years where you're like, my boss is amazing. I would easily give my life to this person because I love them. And I love this idea. The argument here is I love my master. Man, if, if, my, if this father of the household is that worthy of your respect, how must that master have treated that person for six years? Right? That treatment must have been one in which I'm convinced that this person will take care of me for the rest of my life. So I love my father. Right? I want to. I want to be in that family. My wife. I love my bride. Like while I was there during the six years, I got this bride. I want to stay with my bride, and my children. Like I've actually produced. There's fruit in this family, and I don't. I never want to leave this family. I want to make my life with these people. So you join the family. This is the first time in history that a servant can say, "I will not," in verse five. I will not. 
And where else can you see that in any other ancient rule? This isn't in Hammurabi's code, that idea that a servant can say, I will not. It's not in the Quran. It's not in the Bhagavad Gita. It's not in the Analects of Confucius. It's nowhere but in the Bible where a person can say, no, I don't want to. I will not go out free. So that freedom of will, that freedom of choice in this verse becomes uniquely Judeo-Christian. Right? And I think that's pretty neat. If you want to go comparing world religions, find a religion that allows people free will, where you can make a choice. This gets even cooler. An all, everybody knows what an all is. Okay. An all is what we use to punch holes in leather today. We still use alls. They're very sharp, spiky pieces of metal. And you take a hammer and you go, and you do that. If you got your ear pierced, we have fancier devices now. But they used to use alls to pierce your ears. So a bond servant would be somebody who puts a ring on their ear as a sign of a bondhood because they have a master. And when you get married, we still put rings on our fingers to show that we are having, we're in a lifetime commitment with our wife. So a bond servant would be somebody that puts an, or opens their ear because their master does it. Think about this ceremony. Like we have never seen this in our lives, right? I want a movie that shows this ceremony. You know, they're making a lot of more Christian movies now. They need this one. Think of this moment where I say, you know, Alyssa, you've been a great master. I want to serve you for the rest of my life. First of all, oh my goodness, what a compliment to the master, right? This is a, a master that's loving, caring, and has earned the respect and regard and trust of another human being with free will. If I kidnap you and make you my slave, I don't have your love and trust and free will. That's called slavery in our terms of slavery, and that's like the best I'm going to ever get out of you is obedience. But if you give me your loyalty and love, that's amazing. Okay, so there's a show Vikings, and I'll confess, I watch it with the guys, right? And there's this awesome scene in season, where are we? Five. Five. And there's a, a king, a female king of an empire, and she comes into the room and she overhears two of the ladies of the court gossiping about her, right? And it's awesome. She comes up like a Viking. She gets in their face, and she says, when I found you, you were a slave. Do you remember this scene? When I found you, you were a slave, and you're still thinking like a slave. I don't want your obedience. I want your love. And if you can give me your love and trust, I will respect you and honor you for the rest of your life. And I was like, oh, that's so beautiful. And it's exactly what I'm studying in the Bible, right? That's the difference, right? Love out of free will is beautiful. Compliance out of force, that's ugly. And this is love out of free will. Okay, so we're going to pierce the ear with an all. Again, that word pierce is to open, ratza. And it's not, it shows up throughout the Bible from here on out. Um, this idea that you open yourself up to someone, this is the literal example of that, is you open your ear to it. So it starts the tradition of ear piercing, um, which at one point had symbolism. Now it's more just decoration. But imagine the ceremony. I come up and I say, Alyssa's going to be my boss for the rest of my life. We have to go to the judges, right? I have to announce this plainly. Everybody, Alyssa's going to be my master for life. And I will now take on her name. I will define myself as I am Sean, bond servant of Alyssa. For the rest of my life is one Jewish word, but that's not the word that they use here. They use the word forever, eternal forever. Well, that's got to be a typo in the Bible. It's got to be a mistake, right? This is one of the ones your profs, your idiot profs, say, oh, there's mistakes in the Bible. There's conflicts in the Bible. No, there's not. That word forever should cue us into something. If there's an eternal contract being made here, that means we have eternal life. And we should think about this very carefully, right? If we choose a master, it's not just for the rest of our life. 
that's a limited duration of time. When we get married, it's until death do we part. When we do this covenant, it's not till death do we part. It's forever. This gets super cool. Think about Jesus. Think about what happened to Jesus. He actually followed this law and fulfilled it perfectly. Perfectly. To the word. Forever is the right word to use here if you want an eternal contract and not a for the rest of your life contract. Jesus was taken to the judges, right? He publicly declared himself willing to be a servant to his disciples. He plainly said, I will be your servant, and he washed their feet, right? He then declared his love for his father. Father, if this is the cup you have for me, I'll take it. I'll drink it. I'll serve you. He declared his love for his bride, and he taught his disciples, you are the bride, and I am the bridegroom. Right? That's not an accidental imagery that he's using here. And then he declared his love for his children. Right? This is amazing. And it really gives new, those scenes where he was saying, bring the children unto me. I love the children, literally. You're my bride and I'm the bridegroom, figuratively. And he actually talks to his father and says, I'll submit to your, what you want out of me. These are things that were really important when the disciples wrote their gospels. They wanted the Jewish people reading them to know that's what Jesus was doing here. He was becoming our servant, not for the rest of his life, but forever. You see what that does? This is super cool. I'm reading this and I'm like, oh, Steph, I can't wait till Sunday night because <laughs> I got super excited. And then you start reading all over the Bible. You start doing word searches on stuff and like Psalm 40, verse six, sacrifice and offering I did not desire. Mine ears thou hast opened, burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. See the chiastic sandwich and right in the middle is your ears, what he wants, God wants this covenant with us. I didn't want your sacrifices. I don't want your holy stuff. I don't want your service to some organization. I want you to open your ear to me. Pierce your, I want you to pierce your ear, which is a symbol of, I want you to commit your life to me. This is the gospel message in the law, and then there's no accident that's the first law God gives, the first judgment, okay? So if we're going to be his children, we're going to be his bondservant, we should see that. If this is a consistent thing, we should see it. And we see it all over the place in the New Testament. Almost all of the disciples that wrote letters or gospels introduced themselves or called themselves bond servants. And this is the law under which they did that. So if you look at Romans 1.1, Paul introduces himself as a bond servant of Jesus Christ. James 1.1, he's a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Second Peter 1.1, I'm a bond servant of Jesus Christ. And we won't leave Jude out, even though it's a small letter. Jude 1.1, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. They defined themselves and named themselves accordingly. I am Sean, I'm a bondservant of Alyssa, right? And that's the way you would define yourself. So these people were running around the Jewish world saying, I've opened my ear to the Lord. I've listened to my God. And I love the way in which literally that's exactly what God wants from us. So anyways, okay, I got really excited about that. That's not an accident, and these things are not mistaken, and every word of them is super important for us to understand. The next thing's no accident, too, because you're looking at that going, oh, this is really nifty, and there's commentators that talk about it. But then you read the next one, and if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, um, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. There's a difference between the bride and the bridegroom. There's different rules. Okay, so if she does not please her master, who's betrothed himself to her, so this is directly one of those marriage situations, I've taken you into my house because I want you to find a spouse. Then he shall let her be redeemed. This is one of the first uses of the word redeemed we see in the Bible. And we see the word redeemed throughout the Bible. But there's a redemption policy. The law 
says that if things aren't going well with that family that you're in, you have a right to be redeemed from that family. Someone can come and purchase you out of that. There's a redemption policy. He shall have no right, the bridegroom, shall have no right to sell her to foreign people. He has no ownership over this young lady. Since he's dealt deceitfully with her, and if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of the daughters. And if he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying any money. This is completely different and far more protective of young ladies. And in ancient cultures, young ladies were the weakest or most vulnerable people in the society. You could argue, young ladies, that you may feel that way too, but if you're put into someone else's household and they start treating you like like garbage, you're in a really vulnerable situation, right? It's not like you can just go running back home because there's 500 miles between you and, and your home, right? So these people are in really kind of that tough situation. So a mom, servant, is a loaded image for us today. But where Abed had some relation to marriage, this Amma, this is all under this idea of getting married and picking a groom. And this puts the right and dignity in the hand of the young lady. She has the right to leave, right? So it's very common. This isn't just Jewish culture. This is how a lot of cultures at this time operated, right? But in Jewish culture, women have a right to leave. You can't just turn them into a slave and start treating them horribly. Specifically, most men, if you're thinking you're going to have a bride, most men will do their best to impress the young lady. So if we, this isn't a common situation that it doesn't go well, but when it does, um, this is how this should be handled. So if he does not please her master, that should be uncommon, who's betrothed herself to, her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. Instead of just taking her as a proper slave, you're supposed to let her go find another husband. Let her go, break it off. So we have this idea that that happens. That is clearly not part of those cultures of the time. In fact, most of the surrounding cultures are still in a situation where women get bought and sold into these situations, and it's horrible. And today we call it sex trafficking, right? Where you take young ladies and you use them for profit, right? So you can't do that. You can't give her away to foreign entities. She actually can go find another nice Hebrew guy and go get married to him. And she has a right to that. So at any given time, if you don't treat that young lady right, she can say, I want, I want my right to be redeemed. And she has that right. So that empowers her in a way that we don't see in any other culture. I think that's beautiful. And now we get to know the kind of God we serve, the kind of God that values every individual life and gives them dignity and rights. But again, think of this in terms of Jesus, right? The deceiver, <laughs> the one who's deceitful, has absolutely no right and no claim to that young lady. You realize you've been deceived, you can just say, I don't want it. You can't diminish her food. The word for food there is meats. Meats were a delicacy in a family. You fed grains to everyone in your family, but the inner core would get the meats, and that was kind of the luxury food. You can't deny this young lady meats. You can't deny her nice clothing. You can't deny her um, her marriage rights. Like She still should be treated like a daughter. Do you see that in verse 9? If it's not going to work out, you should treat this young lady not as a future bride, though, but as a daughter. Now you need to treat her like she's one of your own family. So if things aren't going to work out, if I brought a young lady to live in my house, in the hopes that she might marry Grant someday, and Grant just says, nah, I don't want to, she's, she eats with her mouth open, I don't want to marry her. I can't just dismiss her. I have an obligation under the law that I need to now take her in as a daughter. 
And okay, Grant, you don't have to marry the young lady, and I understand. We'll try to train her in on the chewing thing. Um, but as a custom of daughters, then I want to treat her like my own daughter, which means I might move her into another household to try to find another spouse. So it's dating. This is an important thing. The no right to sell is huge because um, she can either return to her birth family or she can go to another family. But that idea of redemption pulls her out of that situation, right? She goes free. This is worth meditating on a little bit. And this is where you kind of get, and you read in Psalm 119, and I'm just going to read it. I'll read it at the end too. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Well, how do we delight in this idea of marriage rights, or better yet, when we get to oxens and holes in the ground? How do we delight in that? We think about the nature of God that this has. So think about the nature of this law. He shall go out free, or she shall go out free, implies the bride is unique and special and precious. The bride is promised to a new family, but a false deceiver doesn't provide a spouse like they promised. The bride is a free agent. She's open to be redeemed, courted, and loved. She deserves love. The bride can't be sold to another deceiver, a foreigner, right? She has to be sold to a place where there might be a permanent thing. The bride has value. She has a dowry, a price. She is precious. It's not the chest of gold she brings with her. It's who she is. And you can't deny her that precious value that she has. And the bride has an intrinsic right to love, and she has the freedom to go choose it. If you're not treating her well, she can leave. God says in Psalm 49:15, my God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Selah, meditate on this. I like that. In the Psalms, you ever see Selah? It means think about it. We're going to pause the song for a little bit so you can think about what just got said. Selah. Think about that. God is our redeemer and he redeems us from the power of the grave, which is a lie. We're not going to die. We have eternal life. We live forever. Right? So Jesus does his first miracle at a wedding. That's not an accident either. Right? And he then, throughout his ministry, he calls the church his bride. And I'm going to come back for my bride someday. And I'm going to redeem my bride and take her in. And that language is not an accident. It totally relates to these verses. He's following the law. He's not just using beautiful imagery. When he says that to Jewish ears, they're hearing, oh my goodness, there's a legal precept for this. He's actually following it to the letter. Brides, let me just, this theme throughout the Bible, brides, you're special and you're worthy. Isaiah 60, oh, get your pens ready. If you want to look this stuff up, it's a great Bible study. Isaiah 62.5 says brides are special and they're worthy to rejoice over. You should celebrate when you have an awesome bride join your family. You get a young lady that comes live in your home, that should be, a, you should cherish that. It should be an announcement to the whole community. We've got a new person living in our home and she might be a bride someday. Anyways, brides have been deceived by many, Second John 1, 7. Brides get deceived all the time, right? And those deceivers are evil, nasty, wicked people. You don't mess with the heart of a young woman. You're honest and straightforward and you don't put on guile. If you're courting guys, you're straightforward with women. You tell her what you think and she gets to deal with that. She has the freedom to choose what she wants to do, right? Brides, you are supposed to be provided for and you're supposed to seek that provision in the kingdom of God. And if you seek first the kingdom of God, the family of God, God will provide everything for you. That's the law, Luke 12, 31, right? Seek you first the kingdom of God and all these things will be provided unto you. That's like a good bridegroom providing for the young lady that comes into the home. Brides, I'm not just talking to the girls right now. 
if Jesus says we're the church, are the bride, that means I'm the bride too. So here's a promise that's been made to me. I've been redeemed by somebody who loves me. And I have a right to go join that family if I want to. I'm bought with a price. My God redeems, Exodus 6, 6. We see God first define himself as the redeemer. He's the one that redeems. And here's the first law that has to do with redemption. Isn't that kind of cool? Is it just me? Or am I freaking out about this? That's or, awesome. That's awesome, right? The redeemer lives. Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He's still out there waiting for us. Brides, the deceiver has no power over you. This I had to meditate on. The deceiver has no legal right to you, and it's written into the law of the universe. None. No claim. Now, here's the thing, and that's Romans 6, 9. Brides, God has given both his promise and his oath, Hebrews 6, 18. Brides, you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God, bond servants. Now do the things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life, Romans 6, 22. If you are in a household called the world that has deceived you and hurt you and left you broken and damaged you and hurt you in other ways and has lied to you about who you are and what kind of person you are, you have a right to leave. Here's the thing. We have so many people that stay in that household. They keep their foot in the world that has lied to them, would spin them out, has no concern for their life, does not value or think you're precious. The suicide rate in America is going up dramatically because people don't think they have worth. And they're kind of right. Outside of God, we don't have worth, right? And it causes this desperation and hopelessness. You want to change the world? Start by ignoring the liar that tells you you don't have worth. Listen to the one that loves you and wants you. But yet we stay in the world, we keep our foot there, and we, we tend to be in that household. That's like a young lady that's in a deceiver's household that doesn't actually leave. But they don't have a right to keep you there. Sin, death, this world does not have a right. This is where James in James 2 verse 12 says, the law has set you free. What do you mean? Laws are bonding things. No, they're not. This is a law that says you're free. You've been deceived. You're a free person. You can walk out. You've been mistreated. You're free. You don't have to stay in that world. And the law sets you free as much as it binds or convicts guilty sinners. It frees innocent people and especially the bride of Christ. I don't know. I just think this is awesome. John 15, 19 says, the world would love you as one of its own. Hey, the world says you can come into my family. Be part of what we do here in the world. The world said it would love, the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But you're not part of that world. I chose you to come out of the world, so now it hates you. It's a decision that a young lady has to make. That's our black squirrel. Church should be free from the world. And the Bible consistently paints this image of the bride of Christ should be preparing itself for its groom when it comes back. There should be a goal for purity and holiness. And studying the word is part of how we do that. So thanks for hanging out with other brides, right? So we get in the first two judgments. By the way, I spend a ton of time on these first two judgments. I'm going to go fast through the murder and capital punishment stuff. We get a symbol of Christ and his service. We get a symbol of our service to God being a forever commitment, not till the end of our lives, but for the rest of eternity. And we get this image of the bride of Christ. And you think, oh, I love the law. Now you can see why David sang about it. This is beautiful. And in context of the cruel world that it was emerged in, you see true God inspiration in this. And then you get into some of these other things. Anyways, these aren't as exciting. I got really excited about those first couple, but here's the law concerning violence. So when you hurt people or murder them, 
Remember the commandment said thou shalt not murder? And now we get judgments for when it happens. So this does not mean God wants murder. He's already said in the last chapter, no murdering. But when it happens, here's how we're going to deal with it. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. It's capital punishment. However, if he does not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. That's a refuge city. We get to those in a little bit. If a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So murder is worthy of capital punishment. Genesis 9, 3, Romans 13, 4. It's a consistent New Old Testament concept. This is not just Old Testament stuff. It's worth checking out the motivation in verse 13. It matters how the person died and with what intent, which means we need judges to sort out the truth of the matter. So accidents happen, right? And that's where the city of refuge comes in. I think this is kind of cool when you look to the New Testament for it, um, that when we see refuge or this idea of when our intent is to serve the Lord, but we sin, all we need to do is run to this refuge. And in Hebrews 6.18, it says, Therefore, we who have fled to him, Jesus, for our refuge, can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. And this isn't just Jewish culture. Most cultures at this time, even today, we think of churches as like these, like, ali ali oxen free kind of, you can't hurt me, I'm in a church. Like, this is the place where, you know, in mafia movies, they always have their meeting in a cathedral, right? Because that's the safe place. You can't do things. So when they're talking about people running in and God says, you pull them away from my altar. These are people that have run there, but you look into the truth of the matter and they were, this was premeditated. They really deserve capital punishment. Then God's church is not your sanctuary. He doesn't give refuge to murderers, right? You can pull him away from the altar and take care of him. Here's another thought. Capital punishment is really harsh to our ears. But here it is in the Bible. God doesn't seem to have a problem with it, right? So in American culture, we really wrestle with this. It's a huge debate, but it's not a debate in the Bible, primarily because God sees us as eternal beings. And if you've done this kind of thing in Numbers 35, 33, it talks about how murderers defile the land. And you think about America, how many people have murdered someone with ill intent that have done their jail time or are walking the streets because they never got caught? You get enough murderers in your culture and they create fear because you know they're capable of killing. So they dominate in human relations psychologically. Anyone capable of killing another human being exerts an enormous amount of power on the people around them. They're toxic. And they, when you kill someone, Ritash, and you murder and you demean them, you can then have dominance over them. This happens on every schoolyard in America, not actual murder, but this idea of bullying. Right? And you dominate other people because you're capable of cruelly taking them down a notch. This is in regard to actual killing, though. But this idea that you can't have sociopathic people running around your culture. And capital punishment to us, if, you're, if you don't believe there's life after death, that's this final ending. It's the worst thing that could possibly happen. In God's thing, it's like, no, you don't get to judge that person. I want you to send them to me. You can go have a conversation with God about what you did. Right? But you don't get to stay in the country anymore. Also remember this is civic law, this is not personal law. And we'll get to that with the next few verses. He who strikes his father or mother shall surely be put to death. You don't get to hit your parents. Your job's to to honor your parents, you don't get to beat them. Right? Again, whoever's capable of hitting their mom, do you really want that person walking around your streets? This is a sick human being. There's something broken there. And we don't want to put him in years of counseling. You need to just give him capital punishment. Right? And that's how they dealt with it. 
Verse 16, you kidnaps a man and sells him or he's found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. You don't get to take other people. Slave trade is evil, right? I'd like to see like the Southerners in the 1800s read that and see how they interpret that verse. You're supposed to get the death penalty if you take someone against their will. You don't get to do that. And again, their idea of servants was a voluntary commitment. Found in his hand uh, has to do with money. So especially if you take money for other people and trade them, that's a capital offense thing in Jewish law. Verse 17, he who curses his father and his mother shall surely be put to death. Well, I can't hit them and I can't curse them either. Again, all of this is built to creating an order in society. We start out our life as babies and we need the care of others. We end our life needing the care of others. On both sides, we are innocent. And at some point, all of us people will grow up and the next generation, we're in their hands. We have to trust that they'll take care of us. There's an order to society and you don't just get to kill people because you don't want to take care of them. And you don't get to send your parents off and not deal with them. You have to kind of honor them. So if you curse them or resent that, here's the other thing in verse 17, the word curses. You know how we say light and heavy and they're opposite words? The opposite word to curses, kalal, is to make light of something. We've already seen the opposite of that in the last chapter. You should honor your mother and father. And that word was that word honor was kavad, means to give something weight, significance, importance in your life. Those elders should be important to you. And this is the actual this is the opposite word of that, kalal, to make something light, to not take it seriously. Um, so God puts value on human life and you don't have the right to demean or lessen other, other human beings. Pretty consistent. If men contend with one another, so men will fight. That doesn't mean we should be fighting all the time, but it happens. And the other strikes the other with a stone and you think, what kind of society is this? Like, really? You're in a fight? You pick up a stone and bash somebody? Who does that? Or his fist, he does not die, but he's confined to bed. So you didn't kill them, but they're on bed rest. Like you've laid them up for a while. If he rises again and walks about with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. You don't have to be killed, but you have to pay for their loss of time and you should provide them uh, until they're thoroughly healed. So this is personal injury law and it implies the nature of God is you have responsibility for your actions. Even when you're wrestling with somebody, you have absolute responsibility for them and it's your job to take care of somebody if you hurt them. Verse 20, Catherine, is he in your bubble? <laughs> All right. And if a man beats his male servant with a rod or female servant so that they die under his hand, he shall be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his income. And you may have in your Bibles that might be translated property or silver, but it basically implies the idea or the assumption that a master is not going to beat a servant if they don't have to because the servant provides wealth and income for their family. The assumption is the master was disciplining them. So maybe the person stole something or something like that. Um, but it's, it should be assumed that people don't want to hurt the people that bring income to them. Sadly, there are still people that do it. So there will be punishment for people that hurt and kill people that work for them. The principle of reciprocation is in verse 22. If men fight and a woman hurt a child and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows. First of all, that is harm. He shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him. I love this law. Mm. This is beautiful. You hurt a woman, her husband gets to pick your punishment. And if anybody hurts Steph, I can get creative on that guy. Right? It's my choice. Under the courts, under the law, you hurt my wife, 
Let's go. All right. So, and notice the word and there. That's not the end of it. You heard a woman. Not only does her husband get to pick, um, the husband gets to impose something on you. You shall also pay as the judges determine. Societally, as a community, everybody knows you're a woman hitter. And women hitter are they're scumbags. You don't get to exert your power over other people like that. So not only will you pay a fine based on what the judges determine, but the husband gets to impose a punishment on you too. If any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So again, we see this in context, that eye for eye concept Man, this is for civic law. This is for judges to determine a just punishment for when somebody does horrendous and evil things. This is not a personal morality. I get to get you because you got me. So when people use this idea of eye for eye outside of a civic judicial process, it's horrible misuse of the Bible, right? So we think that revenge, eye for eye, I can get you, you got me. That's not what this says. That's not what this process is about. National politics, well, they bombed Saudi Arabia, so we get to bomb them. No, that is not the application of this <laughs> law. That's a total misuse of eye for eye. Stop using that language. And I've heard it from both parties, so I'm not trying to get political. Um, if you use it in your office politics or at the school you work at, well, so-and-so did this, so I'm going to get them. That's called revenge. That's not civic policy, right? They're totally different. So just a thought. This is the principle of reciprocity. So as a judge, if you're working for Moses and you're helping to run a country and someone does something mean, you're supposed to exact that on the person who did the thing in the first place. So be careful. You have responsibility for actions. If you hit somebody and you hurt their eyeball, then you better worry about your eyeball coming back. But and this principle shows up in the New Testament. It's not, and I think this is important because I hear this a lot of times when you talk to your theology and Bible profs and they talk about the difference between the Old and New Testament. It's the same God. And the same principle is in both Testaments, right? In Matthew 6, 12, right in the Lord's Prayer, in case you missed it, the principle of reciprocity is there. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Let us be treated as we've treated others, right? James 5, 1, if you want to get it even more clear. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to other people. But if you've been merciful, God will be merciful as he judges you. This is a judicial process. When you are judged, you're going to be judged based on how you treat other people. Well, I like that because I'm kind of a nice guy. I would love it if when I got judged, I got judged based on how I've treated other people because I've been nice to people. And this is the mistake that the Pharisees made. They ran around with this law telling everybody else what to do and Jesus calls them out on this and he corrects them, right? Because they would run around saying, you did this, so you deserve this. And they treated it like an individual relationship law. And Jesus kind of said, no, at the individual, at the moral level, at the ethical level, we're supposed to be above this. The law is for sinners. If you're a good person, you should be so far beyond this stuff, right? And listen to how Jesus deals with it. He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist evil people. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn and give him the other cheek too. At an individual level, we're not supposed to exact revenge or vengeance on people. We're supposed to actually kind of take it. And that's really hard if you're in that situation. It is not easy to just take it from people. 
but at an individual level, we're supposed to do that. If you are, if any of you ever become a judge in the United States of America, you have a different way to handle things because it's already gone to the point where it's in the courts, right? And at that point, you deal with it failure. I think Solomon kind of did this a little bit when he, well, we'll get to the oxen law where they divide the oxen and take it. That's kind of what Solomon was doing with those two ladies where one of them claimed it was her child and the other one claimed it. And he just said, okay, well, divide the baby and you can each have half the baby. That's how we deal with this stuff. And then he knew who the real mom was, right? The great wisdom of Solomon. At a judicial level, you want to try to just be fair and equitable and get it done and taken care of and move on. At a personal level, you want to hit me? I'll give you my other cheek. But at least let, you know, let this one not hurt so bad first. <laughs> In my notes it says, never a justification for individuals to go all willy-nilly. That must have been late at night. Verse 26. If a man strikes the eye of his female or male employee or servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of the eye. Whoa! If a person in power abuses a person under their power, not only do you, we don't do eye for eye, we go way beyond that. You hurt somebody that works for you, they have a right to quit. They just earned their freedom. Six years be darned. They're out of there and they get to walk free. You hurt somebody, they're free. He goes even further, because we all lose our teeth, right? Especially in, before dentistry, teeth fall out all the time. If a, you knock out a tooth of your male or female servant, he shall let them go free for the sake of his tooth. A tooth is worth a lifetime of freedom. So you don't get to hurt people, right? I love this God. This is not Ra. This is not Odin. This is not Saturn. This is not Zeus. This is not any of those gods. This is a God that says, man, you hurt somebody, you're going to pay for it. You need to be nice. So you want to sum up these laws, it's don't be a jerk to people, right? Stop being mean. And God had watched humanity for a couple thousand years just be nasty to each other. And God says, stop that. Start being nice and put other people above yourself. Animal control laws, in case you missed this point. Verse 28, if an ox gores a man or woman to death, because that happens. They lived in that world. Fine, they use ox, but that's the only animal in the ancient world that could hurt a human being. Sheep don't go, you know, <laughs> ballistic on people, right? So if an ox kills a person, because that can happen, in our world, a better way to kind of look at this is if your dog bites somebody, if your pet python goes after a person, if you own an animal and they are, they act in that kind of way, then, verse 28, the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. If, you're, if you have an animal and it goes crazy and kills somebody, the animal has to get put down. And no, you don't get to eat it. Like, you don't get to profit off that animal. So you don't get to take its flesh and eat it, and that's making, a, you know, a cow. There's a lot of good meat there. Uh-uh. You lose the value of the cow. You don't get to eat its meat. You just get to put it down. Bad you. Verse 29. But, so that's the first situation. Animal goes nuts, right? But, if the ox had a tendency or tended to thrust with its horn in times past, you knew that your dog bit people and you didn't put it down because you didn't want to kill Fluffy. Now you own that dog's behavior. Listen, this is amazing for ancient law. I mean, there's still people running around on their horses killing people you know, all over the world at this time, right? There's bandits on the road that just throw people in pits. This is a barbaric kind of society. Think of the non-barbarism of this, right? If you knew that in times past had done that, it's been made known to the owner. The owner knew about it. 
and you have not kept it confined so that it's killed a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. You are responsible for your dog. I'm really sorry. I'm totally guilty on this one. Like I have a dog that disrupts Bible study all the time, but I'm responsible for that animal. That's where this, this comes from. If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life, whatever is imprisoned in him. So my dog kills somebody in your family. I don't want to get killed. I can go to you and in verse 30, I can, you can determine, you can impose how much money you want me to pay so that you don't, you don't act on your right to kill me. I can be redeemed. So there's value. So let's, let's weigh that out and do that. So if it's an extremely wealthy person, then whoever just lost a member of their family can now become extremely wealthy. So you can lose all your earthly wealth because they get to pick how much. Whether it's been gored a son or gored a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. Verse 32, if the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be killed. And there's no accident that the number 30 shekels of silver gets used here. You know, in the New Testament, that's the price Judas was paid to kill his master, Mm. right? As that comes. At this period in history, 30 shekels of silver was worth a ransom of money. That's a lot of money. But as time goes on, 1,600 years goes by, more silver has been dug out of those mines. And the value of 30 shekels of silver actually goes down to where it's a good sum of money, but it's not like a king's ransom anymore. And that's what Judas took in order to have his master have Jesus killed. So the price or the value of a servant is 30 shekels of silver. Again, Jesus defined himself as a servant, and he was that was the price paid for him. Verse 33, if a man opens a pit or a man digs a pit and does not cover it, I think it's funny that we're here talking about pit digging. And I think that's, I don't know why, but when an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. And I love the fact that the Bible has the phrase, make it good. You got to make it right. And I just think that that's cool that there's a biblical idea and a biblical phrasing, because we use that all the time. You got to make that right. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animal shall be his. So my donkey's walking around on your land. First of all, shouldn't be, right? But my donkey's walking around, and you haven't put gates or fences or covered up that pit. And there were two reasons you dug a pit. Remember, one is a prison, so you need a place to put people that are in trouble. You let them have some time in the pit. Joseph was thrown in a pit, right? So they were used as prisons. Second reason you dug a pit was to store food or grains because it was like a cellar. It was cooler underneath the ground. But you're supposed to cover it and keep it safe so kids can play and whatnot. You're supposed to put fences up or something. If you don't do it, not only are you responsible for your behavior, not only are you responsible for animals' behavior, you're responsible for inanimate objects that you've put in the world that other people can get hurt by. You're actually culpable if you do something where somebody else gets hurt. This is the opposite of might makes right. This is you're responsible and everyone has equal value. See that throughout these laws? Verse 35. If one man's ox hurts another so that it dies, because ox fight sometimes, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it. And the dead ox they shall divide. You don't get to keep your ox if it kills somebody else's ox. You got to sell it and you're going to split the value of that with the person who lost their ox. So now you're both going to lose one ox and you're both going to get half the value off the one that was still alive. That's kind of fair. Um, Or it was known that the ox tended to thrust in times past and the owner had not kept it confined. You knew this was a nasty ox. He shall pay ox for ox and the dead animal shall be his own. So 
you get to split it if it was an accident. If you knew that was a mean ox and it, and it can be proved and the judges see that, then you lose your, they lose their ox and you get to, you give them their ox. They get 100% of your ox. You don't split it. Again, this is common sense. This is fair. This is the kind of God that the Israelites were realizing they get to serve. They serve a God that's fair. And I just think that's beautiful. Yahweh is a maker, a provider, a savior, redeemer. And we're starting to see another face to God, which is that he's a holy judge. The law convicts people. So last week was pretty depressing. We felt really convicted. And so did the Jewish people. And they still do. They always feel guilty. They're like Catholics. But the law also frees and it redeems. And it represents a good and a loving God that appreciates life and has order in the universe and and has structured it in such a way. The law shows the intent of God, and the intent of God is that humans are treated with dignity, that they have value, and you don't get to just treat people horribly. Better, I'm almost done, Shadow. I want to go back to the coolest part of this chapter. A servant has the right to lay down their life to serve a master for eternity. And I think that's a cool law. A bride has a right to choose who her groom's going to be and can be freed from a family that's deceived her in order to go into a family that loves her. I think that's awesome. Evil gets punished. I think it's hard for us to understand capital punishment, and as you meditate on it, that can be abrasive, and some of you might not be for capital punishment, and that's cool. Respect life. And that's I think, can be a consistent thing, too. So I'm not trying to get political with this, but I love the fact that evil people get punished. And if we don't do it through our civic system... When God comes to judge the, the, the heavens and the earth and there's an end of time, anyone who's done evil to you, they're going to account for that evil. And that, that gives me great satisfaction, especially when people are mean, right? And God wants a society where people aren't trying to rip each other off all the time. And you're responsible for your ox and your pit you've dug. And you have personal responsibility. And that's a concept that I think we're losing in some parts of our society. So meditate on that. And as you do, don't be depressed. These aren't laws that we should be convicted by. These are judgments that we should be encouraged that our rights, we have a rights as a human being and we can trust that they're protected. If they're not protected in this world, God's going to protect them in his kingdom. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And I like to serve a God like that, that thinks that people are responsible for their actions. I'm going to read that Psalm 119 one more time and close on that. David loves the law. He sits around and reads this stuff like we just did tonight. And he just thinks, man, that's wonderful. And he writes, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I shall keep your law. So this isn't, a, this isn't like the Ten Commandments where you just look at yourself and go, man, I'm guilty. This is something where you're like, I want to keep this law. If my ox ever hurts somebody else's ox, I'm okay to divide the profits of, of the living ox. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in your path of your commandments, for I delight in it. I delight in your law day and night, and on your statutes I shall live. What a beautiful thought. We're going to go through a couple more chapters of these kinds of statutes, and I think in all of them we see the face of God and what kind of God we serve. And I think God's a pretty good God, and I hopefully we can do that. So let's say a word of prayer and we'll wrap up. Dear Lord and King, we are your bride, and we come to you as our bridegroom, and we ask to lift you up. Uh, Lord, we want to serve you because you love us and you don't lie to us. You're not deceitful. Um, Lord, you want to provide for us and you say that if we come and serve you and we come as your bride, as a pure and spotless bride, Lord, 
that we are in your family and you want to bring us in and redeem us. So Lord, we pray for that. We choose you because this world has lied to us. This world has left us with less food and clothing and we pray for a, a redeemer to come and take us away. So Lord, we ask for your return to come soon. Uh, and as a bride waiting for her groom, Lord, we just wait for you because we know we do not belong to this world and it has no claim on us. We're here for a time until our Redeemer shows up. When you come, Lord, we just are ready to go. Lord, we ask for your justice uh, to prevail, that it can rule in the land. Uh, Lord, that murderers don't go free. And when they do, we know that they won't under your rule. Uh, Lord, that those that would steal or take advantage or abuse their power uh, or lord over and hurt people and hit people and grab a stone, that that kind of sociopathic behavior is not what you wanted for this world. That kind of evil is not your intention. And Lord, when evil, when we have to face evil or see it or experience the negative effects of other people that do horrible things, uh, Lord, that you help us to rest in your law and in and, and your judgment to know that you will make all things true. Uh, you will... You will wipe our tears away, Lord, and that hurt and that pain that's in this world, Lord. You are, you are here to make it right. Lord, we know that there's still slavery in this world, the negative kind of slavery, not the Hebrew stuff, Lord. We know there's nasty stuff on this planet. And Lord, we are here to serve. Open the doors that we can help to stop that injustice. In a civic way, Lord, we can be involved. And Lord, I just pray for each person in this room that you open their ears, that they serve you as their servant and that you choose them and pull them away as your, as your servant, Lord, and help us to open our ears to you. Help us to be aware and tuned into injustice, Lord, and fight it when we see it. Not out of legalism or like the Pharisees, Lord, but as your child, and that we know what justice is, we know what right and wrong is. So help us to serve you in that regard. Teach us your ways. Lord, again, with Jesus, help us to not be Pharisees. Our job's not to throw the law in the face of people that haven't picked you. Our job's to seek out the law for ourselves and our own lives. And if we face evil, Lord, help us to turn the other cheek because, man, in our flesh, we don't know how to do that. So teach us. Show us how to do it. I pray an anointing on each person in this room as they go out into their jobs and into their classes this week. Bless them. Make them people of courage. May they challenge, Lord, anyone that disrespects your word or thinks that your word is flawed or mistaken or an error. Uh, Lord, I just pray they challenge that and, and learn for themselves where exactly those things are that are a point of contention, that we can find truth and correct it. Lord, I pray that you raise up a generation that knows the word of God like the back of their hand, and they can stand on its principles because they've read them, and we know your law, and we can live under that law with pride, that we're not ashamed of the law. We think it's wonderful, and we delight in it. So Lord, help us to not run from those conversations. Help us to have courage in those and help us to do it in love. Uh, we're not here to accuse people. The, the law does that all by itself. Uh, we're here to love people and help us to do that in such a way that uh, we share your light with other people. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.